Thank you for listening to Questions You Didn't Ask. I am the host, Naisha Frey, and I welcome you to another episode and a fresh new series on foster care, adoption, and kinship care in the African-American community. After our last series on infertility in the African-American community, we discussed the challenges that are faced by women and men who want to have a baby but cannot conceive naturally. We discussed the many supports, solutions, and communities that are available to help. In this episode series, we will explore what happens to children who do not have biological parents that can take care of them and are therefore placed in the care of someone other than their biological parents through adoption, foster care, or kinship care. As the CEO of Naisha Frey Consulting, LLC, I make it a point to share that I am what I do, meaning many of the topics that I work on or talk about have some connection to my life, experience, and worldview. This topic is no different. As a child, I remembered the one thing that scared me the most was not having my parents take care of me or love me. This was stamped in my heart and mind as I learned about the legacy of enslavement that my ancestors endured that most commonly involves selling children from their mothers. I eventually pursued my master's degree in clinical psychology and wrote a paper aiming to identify psychosocial strategies to break generational curses because I recognize the legacy of generational trauma that oftentimes leads to children being placed in foster care. Today, we will be talking about sharing and conversing with people who care for the mental health needs of those in the foster care system, have lived experience as adoptive parents, and a person who thrived in kinship care. Before I introduce you to my guest, I would like to let you know some facts and statistics about foster care, adoption, and kinship care in the African-American community. Today, almost a quarter of children in foster care are Black, yet they make up only 14% of the U.S. population. Yes, 25% of children in foster care are Black, yet they make up only 14% of the U.S. population. I had to say it twice. That means there is a disproportionately higher rate of Black children being removed from their biological families. On average, Black children in the U.S. foster care system are adopted at lower rates than children of other races. The long history in the United States of slavery, segregation, economic injustice, and institutional racism contributes to this overrepresentation in the foster care system and likely also contributes to the larger percentage of African-American children and all grand families. African-Americans are incarcerated at more than five times the rate of whites, and the imprisonment rate for African-American women is twice that of white women. African-Americans are also twice as likely to live in poverty as whites. Systemic racism, along with these factors, can result in African-Americans having more contact with the child welfare system. According to the National Conference of State Legislators, children of color are more likely to experience multiple placements, less likely to be reunited with their birth families, more likely to experience group care, less likely to establish a permanent placement, and more likely to experience poor social, behavioral, and educational outcomes. According to a 2014 paper by Wildeman and Emanuel, Children who have experienced foster care suffer not only from elevated rates of mortality in childhood, but also from a host of other problems ranging from asthma to behavioral problems to suicidal ideation. 
Children in foster care are five times more likely to be diagnosed with depression, four times more likely to be diagnosed with ADHD, and 10 times more likely to be diagnosed with bipolar disorder than other children, for instance. So now let's get into the conversation with my guests and learn more about this important topic and questions you didn't ask. Our first guest today is my dear friend and colleague, Aisha Gray Henry. She is a wife, the mother of two children and a native of Philadelphia. She's a licensed clinical social worker with 20 years experience in human services and mental health care. As it relates to foster care, she has worked in community mental health, regulatory compliance of group homes, system of care advocacy, and complex case management. Currently, she works in the healthcare arena and utilization management and maintains a part-time private practice, Be Encouraged Counseling. She is also a volunteer clinical director for DC, Maryland, Virginia chapter for A Home Within which is a nonprofit that offers free counseling to children and adults who have experienced the foster care system. Welcome, Aisha. Thank you so much for having me, Aisha. I'm excited to be here. I am so excited that you are here. I'm also going to go ahead and introduce our second guest today, Latanya Dubois. Latanya is a wife to a wonderful partner, Tawana, of 23 years, and is a mother to seven children in a blended family who's committed to supporting children and families with their journey towards self-discovery, family stability, and community support. Latanya and her wife, Tawana, started a nonprofit organization, Forever Bonded, in 2020 that provides support, training, and retreats to families and communities to enrich the family bond. It is their hope to support those who want to live their highest calling in life, and she is dedicated to using her many skills and talents to help them achieve their dreams. Thank you so much for joining us today, LaTanya. Thank you so much for having me, Naisha. I'm excited to talk with you all. All right. We're excited to have you as well. I'm really, really um, just overwhelmed with um, everyone's willingness to participate and engage in this wonderful conversation. But without any further ado, I want to introduce our other guest today, Melody Fuller. Melody Fuller was born into a family of musicians and educators where excellence was expected and demonstrated throughout her childhood. Through musical performance and academic scholarship, Melody received a bachelor's degree in actuarial science from Florida A&M University. She launched a 15-year career as a corporate accounting consultant for various Fortune 500 companies within the greater Atlanta area. She is now a technical recruiter for Microsoft and lives with her 13-year-old daughter in Austin, Texas. Welcome, welcome, Melody. Thank you for having me. Thank you. So what I'd like to do um, is starting with Aisha and then moving around to Latanya and finally Melody, is if you could just tell me what made you say yes to my invitation to join this conversation? Sure. This is Aisha. So I think for me, um, I have felt called to speak up more about this experience of people being touched or experiencing foster care. And personally, for me, it comes from a place of foster care touching my family probably about 50 years ago. And as a result, eight of my uncles and aunts were actually put in care. And when they got out of care, it basically changed the trajectory of their lives and impacted our family. And so for me, um, I speak up now and I feel like it's an old day to them, 
um, and to, to all of the challenges, trauma, um, and unfortunate experiences that I know they had that really changed how they viewed their possibilities for life um, and just how it impacted our family. So that's, that's what it is personally. Um, and then I, I grew up in a family, I would say, of service. My mother was a teacher. My dad was a librarian. And my parents were always kind of helping somebody, whether it was family or whether it was our neighbors. Um, and so I eventually got interested in psychology. And um, I've been in social work for the past 20 years. And a lot of my early work experiences, um, I was always either working with a child who was at risk of being in foster care who was already in foster care, or I was advocating for, you know, kids who were in group homes, the conditions of those spaces, um, or the state work I did, which was looking at kids who maybe had moved around a lot and were on multiple medications because of all the different caregiver uh, changes that ends up impacting their health. So that's where, that's where it's coming from me. It's from a heart place. And it's also from a professional work experience. Thank you so much, Aisha. I know that this conversation will be even richer because of you. Thank you so much. Latanya, what are you most excited to share with our audience about your experience with adoption, um, foster care, even kinship care in the African-American community? Well, for me, it was been, um, when you first mentioned this to me, I, I had to like, process a little like how did I get here <laughs> again getting the opportunity to share my experience but um as I tell a lot of people I've I've been every type of parent whether it was a step parent foster parent grandparent um biological parent adoptive parent um and the experience that I've had has shaped a lot of what the training has been in my professional world and what I needed to do within my family unit as a blended family and what brought me to this circle and the excitement I have to share with this circle is the many things that I've learned that is going to be so important to the African-American community and the community at large around how to really navigate this foster care, adoptive care um, scenarios for our children, because it's the children that's losing out the most in this process. And, I, and we feel like we have a nice antidote to help move this process to a better place for everyone that's involved. Well, I am super excited to hear about that. And I know that um, our guests and our audience are too. Uh, without any further ado, Melody, tell us, what made you say yes to my invitation to join this conversation? Yes, absolutely. So, you know, of course, as you know, we've definitely talked in detail um, about my experience, um, my longstanding relationship with you, of course, and your respect. Um, and for your professional professional perspectives, you know, uh, we've talked about um, family um, and, of course, me being um, a part of the kinship um, branch of, of this conversation, being raised by my grandparents, um, with my great grandparents next door uh, growing up has definitely given me um, some perspective. Um, when you talked about adoption, I, um, I first had to think about it, like, you know, growing up, I didn't see myself um, as adopted, quote unquote. Um, because again, I think that um, it was it fit, fell to the category of the kinship, so it was more of an extended uh, family. So growing up uh, and that dynamic has definitely shaped um, a great deal of my perspective on family uh, roles, um, assuming responsibilities, and I hope to shed light on some of the misnomers and maybe some of the you know um, like you said unanswered questions that go on 
uh, in these spaces because, um, you know, from an early on, early in my life, I've always had very fond memories um, of my family. You know, it wasn't until I started to come of age and, you know, get older where the world started to define certain images of traditional families. Um, and that began, that led me to question a lot of things. And so I think because being raised by my grandparents, having a, a different dynamic um, than what's considered traditional. Um, however, I do consider kinship a big extension in the Black family. But um, having that experience, um, I can definitely speak to how it shaped my idea, ideas as a parent um, and, and uh, as family. So I'm, I'm welcomed and I, I feel welcome to be here. Thank you. Thank you. That is my intent for sure. So I'm going to start this conversation off with um, our guest, Aisha, and begin to ask you some questions about what can, can you briefly describe, and I'm sure every situation is unique, mm -hmm. but if you had to pin down what are some of the most common processes and steps that children and families experience when they enter and hopefully exit the child welfare system, what does that look like? It is very... Uh unique in terms of you could come into the system so many different ways. Um, but as a professional, um, what I have seen is um, it, you can come into the system because a neighbor or because uh, a teacher or a social worker at school has seen that a child seems to be neglected. Um, so it could be like this child is coming to school and their clothes are all often unclean or they're not eating. Um, they're hungry a lot. Um, so it could be in a school environment from like a school social worker making a report to your local um, child protective services. Um, it could also be from, like I said, a neighbor who's seeing that a child is seeming neglected or there's some violence going on in the house. Um, and then from a professional sphere, um, you could be a school social worker that makes a report because some people are mandated reporters. So like social workers, teachers, I think nurses, some first responders, we're considered, uh, sorry, we're considered um, mandated reporters. So all we have to do is see something that we suspect um, that this child may be neglected or maybe being abused or in a situation that's not safe. Um, so that's, that's generally how they can come in, if that makes sense. It does make sense. Can you break down a little bit more? Um, what does it mean to be someone that's mandated to report? Um, well, certain people who are licensed, particularly people who are psychologists or social workers, teachers, like I said, nurses, first responders, um, in order to maintain your license, you are actually mandated to report abuse. So if I'm, let's say I'm working with a client and I have suspicions that the kids in the home aren't being fed or they, you know, the parent isn't following up with school stuff because there's also medical neglect. Could be a child is not getting their medications, not being taken to the doctor. Um, if I don't report that, um, I could actually be reported <laughs> for neglect of not reporting that this child was in an unsafe situation. And I'm sure many of us have seen reports or articles where, you know, uh, the local system did not report concerns about a child's safety for a long period of time. And then the child ends up, you know, hurt or even, you know, killed at times. Um, so, um, we always are under the pressure to sort of report things if we're concerned about them because we're always thinking about the most fatal thing that could happen, you know, mm. that we didn't report early enough. 
Um, but um, I have found um, that for me, I, I always take it serious if I report something because I know that it could also be an interruption to a family system. It can also mm-hmm. be traumatic. Um, and so I'm very trauma informed in terms of how I interact with that piece and, and when I would actually report. Now, you said a term that I've come to be familiar with, but I think it's really important on this podcast for us to dive into the questions that we didn't ask. And that is, what is what is it to be a trauma-informed social worker? Um, it's to understand that the, the words, the deeds, and the actions that you, and the decisions that you make are, are, can be traumatic. I mean, it can be traumatic to be just one day in your house and then the next day removed from your house They removed from everything that's familiar to you. Um, and that can be traumatic. So it's having the conscientiousness that what I do, what I say, how I interact, um, and the decisions I make can impact somebody's life forever. Basically that's my definition. (laughs) Right. It could be harmful, you know, right. of not being harmful. You want to be helpful, but make sure, you know, what you think is helpful could be harmful. Mm-hmm. What helps you make that decision and draw that line when you are faced with a situation where you're considering uh, reporting something about a child and their family? Um, I think for me, um, just because of every job has had that area, it's always a thing of, okay, I might have a suspicion but it kind of goes through three layers for me. And so what I mean is I look at the situation, <laughs> I'll try to look at it three different ways, you know, as a profession, as a community member and in and, and the social context. But I also will always usually consult with a, a colleague because okay. I know that I don't see all parts of it. And I'll say, hey, what do you think about this? Do you think this is something that should be reported? Um and that kind of helps me kind of make a decision. And sometimes I'll even go even higher than that and say, let me look at, let me talk to my supervisor or mm-hmm. let me see, let me talk to somebody who understands this particular population. Um, but it's never a quick decision for me. It never has been. It just never has been for me. Yeah. I take it very seriously. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's, that's important for people to know that, you know, there's a lot, a lot that goes into making this decision and we're not here to talk about every social worker, or every mandated reporter, but we are we're definitely leaning into your expertise and your experience. And so I appreciate you for share, sharing that. And also your family and lived experience. You know, right. you talked about, you know, your your aunts and uncles and seeing the impacts um, mm-hmm. of certain decisions that were made on their behalf when they were children and could not they did not have the agency to speak up for themselves or to protect themselves. And Mm -hmm. so that leads me to my next question, which are what are some of the health implications for children that are removed from their biological families placed in foster care and not adopted? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, let me just say that, you know, our system is not perfect. It, it, it it needs a lot of work. Um, And I think that what happens when kids, what I've seen when they're placed in care is that the, the trauma of just being removed from your familiar surroundings and not having your parents or whoever is your caregiver. To me, it's always like taking the floor from somebody. It's like uh-huh. taking the floor. OK. And so then you're put in a situation where now you're in another person's household. Um, and sometimes what happens is that in terms of health. Um, things aren't always transferred. So who was their primary care doctor? Who, you know, what medications were they on? What vitamins did they take? 
What kinds of foods did they have allergies to? What, you know, what types of uh, accommodations did they have at school? Sometimes that information is not transferred to wherever their new placement is or their new foster care uh, home. Um, and so there's a lot of things that get can get dropped in there. Um, and so what I have seen is that sometimes because emotionally kids are traumatized and sometimes that comes out as anger, defiance. Um, I don't want to I don't trust you adults. <laughs> Y'all are not reliable. Um, and so, you know, they're acting out at school. They can be acting out in the foster homes and, they, and then they end up moving to multiple foster homes because of these behaviors that are really indications of trauma and, and uh, you know, trauma, sadness, depression, all of that, and grief, um, the their health information gets a little bit lost in there. Um, mm-hmm. I've also seen where kids, you know, they get diagnoses um, and then they get put on medications, but then there's nobody consistently following up with um, how they're experiencing those medications. Are they actually working? Do they need to be on a higher dose? I've mm-hmm. seen kids you know, only have two diagnoses, but be on six medications. Um, and so really having, wow. they, because they're having these multiple caregivers, um, you know, you really, they really have to be set up to really have somebody that's monitoring that. Um, and so who is that? Is that going to be their foster care worker? Is that going to be their foster parent that keeps changing? All these things, all these adults keeps changing. So mm. there's, there's, a lot of system of care work, which some states have started to try to help fill in those gaps so that their care isn't kind of lost in the constant change. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. That's tough. It is. So you, yeah. I mean, we didn't, we didn't jump into this conversation thinking it was going to be easy, right? <laughs> yeah. Whew, yeah. I think that's one of the reasons why people don't ask certain questions because they're like, oh, do I even really want to know? But I'm going <laughs> to say <laughs> that we probably need to know so that we can know how to support each other and how mm-hmm. we can, um, what things to do or what things not to do. What do we need to advocate for? You know, mm-hmm. even politics, like what do we need mm-hmm. to be holding people accountable for? Mm-hmm. Um, what do we need to be looking out for? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, let me just say this too, you know, in terms of working in the, the foster care system too, in terms of professionals, um, I never did the frontline, you know, removing kids from their homes, working yeah. with CPS and all of that. But some of those workers are sometimes people who don't always have a degree in social work or psychology or have that education. And then they're inundated with, you know, 50 cases or 60 cases. And so there's just a lot of opportunity for information to be, you know, lost. For information. And I would imagine some empathy and some burnout. Right. 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 Absolutely. This person is on the front lines, you know, dealing with people at their most vulnerable and they are overwhelmed Mm -hmm. um, and not always um, equipped Mm -hmm. with what they need to do this in the most, um, compassionate and sensitive way, which Mm -hmm. none of it is easy, you know, Mm -hmm. even so. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Along those lines, though, what interventions are used to address some of the generational trauma or abuse in families that are connected to the child welfare system? Is it just kind of like we take your child and you just figure it out on your own and we're going to figure out how to get this child into a new space? Or is there some healing? that mm-hmm. happens. Hmm. 
Interesting. Good question. I think that's a complex answer, too. I think that it all depends on your jurisdiction or your state or your locality. Um, I think that some states have prioritized it in a sense of system of care work and trying to make sure, you know, the DSS worker, the foster care worker, that there's a therapist assigned, um, that the therapist is trained in trauma informed, uh, you know, treatment or what they call uh, TFCBT uh, interventions. Um, Okay, you know, so you're going to have to break down that, uh, that acronym now. <laughs> so trauma-informed uh, cognitive behavioral therapy is, is, is a common term um, used for intervention in terms of really understanding trauma and how it affects um, our thoughts and, and our, our views of ourselves. Um, you know, I think that there is no systematic approach that I'm aware of in terms of the intervention for kids in foster care. Um, I would say it probably depends more on the therapist and what they're trained in. Um, so I always feel like a trauma-informed therapist or somebody who's, who's been trained in trauma is probably the most appropriate person to, to work with a child who's been in foster care. So this is somebody who's trained in understanding trauma, how it affects the brain, how it attracts, attra uh, affects the individual, and how do you actually develop skills to then cope with what comes with that. Um, a lot of times, sometimes kids are just assigned to somebody who's a therapist, but that doesn't mean they're trained in understanding the trauma and grief associated with foster care. So that's a place of growth for our system, definitely. Um, but to answer your question, um, I don't think there's any like general syst <laughs> systematic uh, flow in terms of like every child that's in foster care doesn't need therapy. Um, mm. You know, some kids are quite resilient. There are there are those children. Um and sometimes, you know, it's like they want to look for a label for everybody, but not every child actually needs that. Um, so I think it's really a system that is able to individualize the a treatment approach for, you know, each particular child. But that, you know, once again, that's challenging, depending on the volume um, of kids you have in care. And then what what um, what providers do you have in that area? You know, so all that. Does that answer your question? It does. It does. And in just a minute, I'm going to start to bring in um, our some of our other guests here. But I'm going to ask you one question before I do. Why do you think most African-American children are not adopted? Hmm. I think something I do want to touch on briefly, too. You talked about healing. And when I think about when I decided to go into this work, I was really interested in healing work. How do you heal? What I have found is that our system is not really set up for healing. Mm. So that's one one piece. Um, in the African-American uh, community, um, I think that, you know, unfortunately, African-American children are in foster care at such a high volume. There is just a large amount of, of, of our children in the system. Mm -hmm. um, and as we know, a lot of that is a result of poverty, systemic racism, and, and all the issues that, you know, are in our community. Um, so that's why I don't think that we have a culture in our community of trusting the system right. <laughs> or even, you know, and or I think adoption is almost like this foreign thing, because I think just like Melody was saying earlier, like she didn't even consider herself what's kinship foster care, <laughs> you know, but I can even think of various family members I have that I was like, oh, that probably could be considered kinship foster care. Um or neighbors I knew who had take were taking on their their grandchildren and raising them. That was very common in the community that I grew up in. Um, mm -hmm. But they didn't necessarily, 
you know, come outside the house and say, yeah, y'all, we doing kinship foster care now, you know, and nobody, nobody's, right. we don't, we don't really put our, our, our business on blast. Right. And mm -hmm. so I think because we don't do that, um, some things aren't normalized uh, in a formal sense um, like they could, you know, which would probably help some of the children in that experience feel a little less different or, you know, alienated to some extent. Um, but yeah, I don't, th I think it's our culture. We're not really, we don't really promote like adopting because <laughs> it's mm -hmm. like, I'm trying to take care of the kids I have, you know? Mm. <laughs> so to, to take on more responsibility, you know, right. because it's, it's in, in, and this is my last piece. And I think this is why mm. I, I just give homage and respect to people who adopt and to people who do take on more children in their own. Because when you take a child into your home who's been traumatized, who hasn't had constant caregivers, might have learning difficulties, might have medical issues, um, it can really be a lot. And I think foster parents and adoptive parents aren't supported enough in managing that complexity. Thank you for sharing that piece. Thank you for sharing that piece. And on that note, I'm going to bring in LaTanya and um, Aisha, feel free to jump in and share and connect with LaTanya as we're talking. Um, but LaTanya, I want to hear from you. When and how did you know it made sense for you to adopt? So um, I'm loving what Aisha is saying because I think so many people have a misunderstanding of how complex the foster adoption system um, of, I guess you could say system of care, because this is supposed to be a care model, um, that is so complex, it has so many moving parts. And it, um, I can look at it from every vein because of the experience I've had. But to ask any, answer your question, um, it actually came to be because we, we had, uh, we have five, we have four children between us and three of our children were going off to college and the house that we were in just had a lot of room. And we have always been seen as the family that had a lot of kids. So between our kids and our kids, friends, our house was always full of children. Mm -hmm. So it only became second nature to us to find out about other people's situations. You know, people would have their children over at our house and they would talk about what was going on in their homes and we would coach them through things and support them. And, you know, just going through teenage life, I was a teenager and I was not far removed from how difficult my life was at that time. So I would relate to them. And um, as the kids were moving out, we was like, why wouldn't we go into foster care? It was actually something my wife wanted to do for a long time, but I had not had it in the forefront of my mind um, as a result of a little bit of what you asked a moment ago about African-Americans doing foster care. So um, once we got into foster care though, uh, our intention was to keep larger groups of children together, like sibling mm. groups together. That was the intention. We had enough space and we literally wanted to get, you know, the parents who had children that went into care that had three or four and five siblings to be in one space because we knew that that secondary trauma was becoming such an issue for a lot of children. And we've been in and out of different school systems and seeing the naivety that was present in the school system around foster care. Like not just like um, Aisha said, that information doesn't carry over. A lot of students do not talk about the fact that they moved from one house to another last night. Um, right. So the school doesn't even know that the child went through this traumatic experience because the child just comes and stays in the rhythm of whatever's going on because it's a shame attached to it. So 
we saw a lot of this stuff. We also saw a lot of transient families in our communities um, back in New York before we moved here. And um, once the opportunity came for the children that we had in care to become adopted, we saw it as the same traumatic experience to say, okay, well, we don't want to adopt, so let them go to another house that might want to adopt. That just didn't sit right with us. It's like it's going to defeat everything we work towards, especially because at times the foster care and adoptive care system um, takes a long time to um, work through the parental rights. And our intention and purpose is to keep families together. So we did a lot of work directly with the parents to try to keep them uh, to try to work towards reunification. And wherever that didn't happen, we figured, okay, well, how do we reduce the harm to the child while still maintaining our integrity and in our family, like making sure we check in, we brought our kids in because when they came back from college, these kids would be there. So it's like, you don't have no space no more because we got kids here now, right? <laughs> right. So, so we have to ask them like, so what would happen if we end up adopting these children? So this is how we are with our kids anyway. So we, we have very hearty conversations about every aspect, what you feel, what you think, um, how how do you see yourself playing a role in being like a sister or a brother to this person um, or not, you know? And that played a huge part. And once we realized that everybody was on board, we went forward with the process to foster with the intention to be supportive if adoption came up. Awesome. Awesome. I love that communication and you know, making it a family decision. Um, so <clears throat> what do you feel most influenced the final decision you took to adopt? Um, the impact it had on our daughters. So um, we actually, the first group of children we had was three children. They were Mexican children, actually. And they, um, we watched how the social workers mishandled their case. Mm. Like when we first got the um, children assigned to us, we didn't even know our adoption paper, our um, our license had came through. We were in the system, but we hadn't gotten the paperwork yet. So they called us at like 11, 10 o'clock at night saying they had three children that were from the same home and needed a place. And we were like, sure, you know, we was already out hanging out eating with our son. So we went and got them. And I remember the social worker saying to us, um, don't let them speak Spanish. What? I was so livid. I was like, okay, so you take these children and, and the story of how they were removed was just, uh, you know, it was in the middle of the day, right after they got out of school, all the children were on the, in the uh, community playing outside and the, the uh, social worker had to take them from that play yard in front of all of their friends because the mom wasn't there. And, mm. um, the uncle or aunt or someone had them and they were outside playing like they usually do. And, the, and their whole community pretty much watched them be taken away with garbage bags for their clothes. Oh. They didn't even have book bags or anything. And they had to do it quickly. So they couldn't carry every, you know, get everything they wanted. And then they couldn't find a family uh, to take the children in. And this happened at three o'clock and they couldn't get to a family until they got us at 10 o'clock. Nobody would take the children in that was already in their database. So wow. when when they uh, when they got to our house and I mean, well, when they got to our um, when we got to the place to pick them up and the social worker said that to me, I, I pulled her aside and took her in front of her supervisor. And I explained to her that uh, you, you can't take their culture away, too. You right. just can't do that. 
um, if you're worried about what they're going to say in Spanish, then you you have to try to find somebody who's um, bilingual. And since you don't have that, you can't take it. They have a right to speak however they want to speak. Now, that she did, she didn't have no knowledge that I, I can understand Spanish. I just couldn't speak it fluently because my mom is bilingual. But I didn't. Ha- she didn't ask me either, so she didn't have uh. an intention to make sure that these children had some level of, you know, comfort. Mind you, the home that we took them to, and I tell people this all the time, the home we took them to at the time was like in this wooded area. So you drove for a long time in the dark down these long roads and then turned down this creepy street and you go into this big house at the end of the block where there's nothing but woods, woods around them and you want them to be comfortable. Like that's mm. not realistic. But once we start to create relationships and build rapport, uh, they got it. We let them choose the menu. We took them shopping to the supermarkets that they knew so that they could get, you know, what they usually eat. It was very important that we infused their culture into our home. And one of the reasons why that became part of our decision making process is because we saw how much the daughter, she was the oldest, she was 17, how much she needed to help the children, the younger ones, the seven and the eight year old feel comfortable with this process like how Mm -hmm. them being together made it a little bit easier so when our uh, first daughter came um she came alone but her mom had other children and then um when the second daughter came they called us and said this one is going to be adopted period so we were like okay so at least they'll have there'll be a sibling group you know even though they weren't directly related and Mm -hmm. That was like, okay, so at least now we know that they'll be settled, they'll have companionship, and they'll go through this process together. And that made it easier because we figured at least they're not doing it alone. They'll have some commonality. Um, And that's what helped us really move towards the yes for adoption. Right. So you went from talking about a transracial foster opportunity. Mm -hmm. (laughs) What wound up happening to those children? They actually got reunified. So we were super excited Good. because it was such an intense story. It was actually five children in total that the mom had, but the oldest child had already moved out of the home. And the other three, uh, the other child was the one that was accusing one of the family members of abuse. So she went to a different home for the sake of her. She requested it. Um, and once we started um, going to the, we would go to every court hearing and everything, we would talk to the mom. I mean, they, she always had someone that I can translate. So we would talk to the mom. And as it was getting closer to, you know, of course, she was doing everything that they asked her to do to the degree that she could. And when, and when she had uh, earned back her unsupervised visits, um, she started to feel guilty and do some things that would set them back, you know, because they were taking advantage of it. Like she would buy them a whole bunch of stuff and she didn't have the money to do that. She wasn't making them do their homework. She was really just trying to stay away from being a disciplinarian. So we called like family meetings where the older daughter would come and um, the other daughter that stayed with us because she aged out at 18 by the time um, we got her in January, got them in January and she was 18 by May, by June. Okay. But the other one stayed for a year. So um, we got them all together and we sat with the mom and related to her as a mother. Like, 
We get it. You feel bad about what happened, but don't let them do this to you because you still are the disciplinarian in the home. You're the provider. You're the caregiver. Do all the parts. And we just supported her through that whole process so that she can get what she needed. But then we also advocated for her to ask them for different resources to help support her as they came back to the home, like therapy. And, um, like school uh, involvement, like where she can go into the school and talk to the teachers because a lot happened with that. One of the children did have a medical issue. So when Aisha said that, that was huge because again, that was not told to us, but because of the type of parents we are, we were able to figure that out from some behaviors we saw from one of the kids. So um, we asked the doctors to look into it and we found out there was some historical stuff there and was able to get that um, taken care of. But um, yeah, we just supported the mom and she was able to get the kids back and we actually stay in touch with them. We, we call ourselves godparents to them, um, because it was easier for them awesome. to tell people who we were instead of saying, oh, these are my adoptive or foster parents or whatever. We was like, you could call us your, you know, godparents if you want, because then that has less questions. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, so they did that and we still, I mean, we just had our daughter's um, birthday party last year and they came with their children because, you know, the oldest have children now. So wow. we stay in their lives and we support the parents along the way. But yeah, we were happy that they got back together. Awesome. Oh my gosh, this is such a powerful story. Um, <clears throat> tell us the process you went through to adopt your daughters. So, um, so here's the part where when you said why African-American families probably don't do this. <laughs> oh, Lord. Is, um, you know, you go through a MAP training. Um, and I forgot what, what MAP, is MAP stands okay. for. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to remember. Aisha, if you could help me, that would be great. But I can't remember what it stands for because they always said MAP, MAP, MAP. And it didn't press in my head that way. But we would go through this training for a few weeks. I think it was like maybe six weeks or so, eight weeks, it might even been longer. Uh, but that was the initial training you went through. Once you get through that training, you get licensed, you do the home um, study. And the home study just gets you prepared to have the people, children in your home. When you go into the adoption phase, you have to do almost like a uh, investigative process where they do background checks. Again, they have you do a bio. You actually write your story of everything that you've done from if you ever used drugs, if you dropped out of school, like all the things that society usually frowns on. They want to know if you have experienced that and how did you cope with it? Like just kind of getting a temperament of what your experience has been. Um, then you have to do the home study where they come and see if you have the the facilities to support having the children in your home forever. They interview your family members. Um, they also did a few um, court hearings where we would go with the parent. Uh, so it was just the mom in one of the children's, uh, two of our children's situation. They couldn't identify the dad, but in order to solidify their judgment that the father loses his rights because they have to take the parental rights from the child from the parents um they had to do like a newspaper article to see if they could find the gentleman she had to have several men that she had uh engaged in sexual activity with to come in and get tested um so we waited while all of that was happening and then um she actually had a, a group of of goals that she was supposed to uh work on during this time um one of the children was in care for about um hmm, almost 2 years 
while she was trying to do a lot of things. And, and there's a specific thing that we learned, you know, just from observation of the children that we happen to be placed with, that the system does not allow grace for parents with special needs, like especially uh. cognitive disability. Um, so wow. so we, we uh, advocated a lot for that. Uh, you know, because some of the things that asking the parents to do does not align with what their what their abilities are. And uh, exactly. we later, later found out that you can also get a GAL and that's a guardian at Lightham, which is an advocate that mm-hmm. would have spoke up for some of the, the parents. But we didn't find that out until the third child we adopted and advocated for them to get them involved. Um, but that was some of the barriers that the parent was facing. The other barriers was, you know, they had to take a parenting class, but the parenting class is very generic. So a lot of the things that was transferred over from that class was not able to really be practical for her to care for the child. Like it showed you some daily living skills for the most part and some cognitive education around being a parent, but actually putting that in their real life, like going to work, coming home, washing clothes, da da da, sitting down for homework, cooking dinner, like it wasn't a rhythm like that. So she struggled with trying to manage all of those things and uh, oh, model approach to partnerships and parenting. Thank you so much, Felicia. So um, that's what MAP stands for. So we had to watch all of this process go on. And then towards the end, when um, it was a couple, of, I think about five or six meetings we had with the judge where the judge was just like, you know, if you don't do this by this date, you're going to lose the um, rights to your children. If you don't do this, like they just kept saying that to her. Um, and she kept coming saying she would, but it just didn't happen. And towards the last two, she was saying after meeting us and talking to us and we would send notes to her when she had visits and we would send pictures and updates and tell stories about what the, the babies was doing. Um, she asked that we adopt them. She asked if we would be the ones that the baby would stay with. Um, so she basically gave up her rights at that time. And then they had to wait to do the father part. Um, so that's how the first one went. The second one was different because the second one, we, we had already had our house cleared for, um, being foster parents. But what was different was this particular family, same situation, a cognitive delay in their, um, ability to navigate parenting. And this was their fifth child. Um, and of those five children, three, two, three of them had lost their lives in their care, but not purposely. It was like accidental because of what they, what their limitations were. And to give an example of that is, okay, so we would send the baby with the uh, social worker to do their supervised visit. And they had a two hour visit. We would send like five Pampers, two bottles, and they would change that baby five times while they were with her, they would force feed her according to the social worker. So they just didn't understand, you know, she cried, they just fed her and changed the pamper. They didn't, they couldn't grasp the idea that, you know, this is sometimes what a baby does, or, you know, you might have to paddle, maybe they're gassy. They, they, it wouldn't register for them for some Mm -hmm. reason. Um, Of course, we also get bios of families. Um, So for that particular family, we had uh, the bios for the mom and the dad because they both were involved in the case. Um, But we literally got that baby from the hospital. 
like as if we had the baby. They literally gave the baby to Tawana and put her in a and put the baby in her lap and wheeled to the world. Like it was her child that she birthed the baby. So the mom never got that experience with her. We we experienced a lot of things with that baby as a result of that. Um that we know now was definitely a part of the detachment that had to happen for the for the baby from birth. So um so that's how we got her. She came straight home to us. We didn't have to do the new home study or nothing. We just was a house that was ready. They put in the paperwork for us to start the adoption process. Um, and they copied and pasted, you might as well say, like they took all because it was so close in the time that they were adopted. Um, but once you send the paperwork off, we still have to wait for the um, paperwork to be um, filed in the um, the state um, oh my God, I want to say registrar's office, but it's another office specifically for, it's not like, it's like a register of deeds in a sense. And I can't remember the name of that department, but they are the ones that put it in the books that this child was adopted and they changed who the parent is. We get a birth certificate for the child. We get social security cards based on that adoption. Um, we also, because at the time of this baby, the second baby, we were married, um, that one was fine. But the first one, we had to go do special paperwork at court so that if something happened to me, um, Tawana wouldn't have any issues with um, parental rights to the, the, the first baby. So that was an issue, too. You have to go do extra paperwork, pay some money for that. Um, the other thing I want to just say quickly that's different is that we did foster to adopt, which is a very different process than when you go to an adoption agency um, and go through the process with them. It's, it's a little bit more costly. You get a lot of your costs reimbursed when you go through foster to adopt process. So I do want to say that that's a differentiation between the two, that it's a little bit more um, costly on the adoption side. Although there are some programs that are through nonprofit that it doesn't have to be as expensive, that is a different process from what we went through. And I, I really can't speak to that because I don't know a lot of people that did it uh, uh, straight from an adoption agency. Yeah, that's an important distinction. Um, I definitely saw that in the literature when I was reading up on this, um, that there are multiple ways that you can go about adopting a child. Mm -hmm. Thank you for listening to our podcast, Questions You Didn't Ask, with me, Naisha Frey, and my guests this week, Aisha Gray-Henry, Latanya Dewberry, and Melody Fuller. Tune in next week as our conversation continues.